1861, our country experienced its first civil war. It spanned for five years, and by the time it had ended, 650,000 soldiers were dead. It was the North against the South, and both of them had very strong military leaders, but what makes Civil War so different from other wars is that it pits its brother against brother. Whole families were just fighting one another and laid to rest together in the same cemetery. The United States, instead of being united, was more divided at that time than ever before. And this is what we kind of see when we open up chapter 3 of 2 Samuel. Israel was really made up of 12 tribes, but it was a very much divided kingdom at that time. The north was against the south. 11 tribes in the north under Ishbosheth, and he had a military commander named Abner, and the tribe of Judah to the south was under King David with the military commander named Joab. So when we open up chapter 3, we see that the civil war is continuing. In verse 1, now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. This verse just shows that God in his sovereignty is setting things in motion to accomplish David's rulership over all of Israel by strengthening him and weakening his enemy. But God is sovereign, we know, over all governments. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. This includes both kings and presidents. But however blessed David was on the throne, he wasn't so blessed in his private life. David was a failure as a father, and he reaped what he sowed because of it. If there was family counseling for dysfunction available back then, David would definitely need to be signed up for some sessions. We can see the problems starting to add up in the next portion of this chapter, which I've entitled Dysfunction Junction, verses 2 through 5. And these were the sons born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Enoham from Jezreel. The second was Chiliab by Abigail the Carmelite. The third was Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of King Geshur. The fourth was Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth was Shephatiah, son of Abital. And the sixth was Ithream by Eglah. All these were born to David in Hebron. So David has these six sons by six different wives. And David's polygamous lifestyle may lead some to come to the conclusion that if God blessed David so much, he must condone polygamy. After all, David's king. He's noted as a man after God's own heart. But look at him, he has all these wives. But scripture, of course, is clear from the very beginning all the way back to Genesis 2 that God's intention for marriage and for man has always been one of monogamy. One man and one woman. God may have permitted or even tolerated this polygamy to go on, and it, and it did through the Old Testament, because man does not do what's right. He always seeks his own way. And in the ancient world, marrying into different families could be very advantageous, especially to kings. This was often the case in creating alliances between kings. And David didn't stop with six wives. He adds a few more as well as some concubines, as time goes on, we'll see. And when David's son Solomon comes along and becomes king, he brings it to a whole new level. He has 700 wives and 300 concubines. 
But the Lord warned against the dangers of polygamy in Deuteronomy 17, 17. In laws concerning Israel's kings, God says, and you shall not acquire many wives for yourself, lest your heart turn away from me. So much for obeying that one. Anyway, polygamy only serves to create chaos within a family, and we can see that. Let's face it, it's hard enough in a monogamous relationship for two sinners to live under one roof. Imagine the tension with multiple wives and all these children who are half-brothers and half-sisters. The jealousy had to be outrageous. And I had to look at these sons uh, that were listed in Hebron. Three of them are very notable. I call it the AAA club. Um, the first son, Amnon, uh, Absalom, and Adonijah. These three uh, were very notable of the dysfunction that went on in David's family. In verse 2, Amnon, the firstborn, was responsible for the rape of his half-sister Tamar in 2 Samuel 13, which David incidentally did nothing about. And Amnon's brother, Absalom, later murders him for it. David did nothing about that either. Verse 3, Absalom, David's third son, was the good-looking, smooth-talking man full of pride and anger. He tried to usurp his father's throne on more than one occasion, conspiring against him. He also slept with one of his father's concubines right out in the open in all of defiance of Israel. Absalom killed his brother Amnon, and Absalom himself ended up dying a pretty gruesome death. He got his head caught in a tree, and while still hanging, was speared to death by Joab, David's commander. And the third of the AAA sons, Adonijah, the fourth son, aligned himself with Joab, David's commander, in an attempt to take the throne from David. Both ended up being executed under King Solomon's reign at David's urging. But all that's a day late and a dollar short, really, when you think about it. After all this has been going on, it's like closing the barn door after the horses got out. These three sons are just a sampling, uh, just small examples of the contention that exists among the mixed family members, not to mention all the jealousy that had to been going on with the wives. David is held responsible for all this dysfunction because he never disciplined his children. He practiced polygamy, polygamy and never disciplined his children, which were the product of his polygamous life. The prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12 predicted that this would happen to David, and he said it right, right out now that the Lord has said, your family will never have peace, for I am bringing trouble against you, and this trouble will come from your own family. Now, you would think that that would give David a wake-up call, but it didn't seem to change his parenting skills any. Now, in the next section, we're going to see uh, the, the commander, Abner, pushing his luck. This is Ishbosheth's right-hand man, in verses 6 through 11. Abner, Ishbosheth's commander, is flexing his muscles now. He's actually the real power behind the throne of Israel. He was responsible for placing Ishbosheth on the throne when all along he knew that it belonged to David. But Abner was a very proud and intimidating man, and everything he did was self serving. He only did things that would promote himself. So in verses 6 through 11, it came about. And it came about while there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ea. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner became angry with Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? In other words, what he was actually saying was, You're talking to me like this? How dare you? 
You wouldn't even be on the throne if it wasn't for me. But Abner's highly insulted. His pride is wounded, so he loses it. He uses the expression, am I a dog's head in Judah? Which I'm told has the connotation of being a despicable traitor. So Abner com continues his rant in the remainder of verse 8. Today I've shown kindness to the house of Saul, your father, and to his brothers and friends in not delivering you to the hands of David. Now you accuse me guilty of being of a charge concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner and more also. If the Lord has sworn to David, as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to establish the throne of David over Israel and Judah, from Dan to Bathsheba. So here's the expression. The expression Dan to Bathsheba meant the whole country, north to south, and all of Israel. And Abner knew this because he even said it. He said, the Lord has sworn to David the throne. Abner knew all along that the throne rightly belonged to David. So <clears throat> Abner knew that David was the rightful king and not Ishbosheth but went ahead and did this for his own benefit. And now that things aren't going so well between him and King Ishbosheth, he's moving on. Because in verse 11, he goes on to say, and the king could not say a word to Abner because he was afraid of him. Abner may have been a very intimidating man, but Ishbosheth was a very weak king. They were a great pair, two peas in a pod. So Abner now decides to switch sides. In verses 12 through 16, Abner joins David. Then Abner sent messages to David in his place saying, Whose land is this going to be? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you, and I'll bring all Israel over to you. Now Abner is deciding to take on the winning side. He wants to be on the winning side. He knows David's the rightful king. He knows David's gaining strength. And the prophet Nathan in 1 Chronicles 17 said, David would sit one day on the throne to rule over all of Israel. And I just want to interject here, too, that I can't help but mention the humility and patience David has shown throughout this book. And I've, he never tried to manipulate the outcome over all these years, even though he knew he was the rightful king, even from a child. He had been anointed twice already and will be for a third time coming up. Yet he never jumped before God to seize the throne before the time. He waited more than a decade to see all of this come to, to fruition. When Samuel anointed him. He was only a boy, but he didn't reach the throne until age 30. He waited patiently. When he had multiple opportunities to kill Saul, King Saul, he refrained. But he could have seen it as an open door to the throne, but he, he knew what was the right thing to do. He did not touch the Lord's anointed. And it's hard for us to imagine in our modern democratic in our modern democracy, democratic country, how long it took some of these ancient kingdoms to transfer power. You know, on January 20th, our country had a transfer of power and election took place. But really, when you think about it, it only took a few months of campaigning, one day for an election, and a 20-minute swearing-in ceremony, and that was the end of it. But it was a much different world back then. It took sometimes years to transfer power from one kingdom to another. And a good example of David being so patient is a good example to us how waiting for the Lord's timing in our lives, how important that really is. It's not an easy thing but how important it really is. 
So back to Abner. He sends messengers to David and asks to meet with David and make a covenant. And in return, Abner will convince all Israel to come to David's side. And then David will be king over all of Israel. Well, David agrees to this, but with one condition. Now, David says in verses 13 through 16, And David says, Good, I'll make a covenant with you. But I demand one thing. You shall not see my face unless you bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, to whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Not an easy task, I'm sure. Anyway, so Ishbosheth sent for Michal and took her from her husband Paltiel, and her husband went with her weeping as she went, and he followed her as far as Barum, but Abner told him to return, and he did. So David's wife previous wife Michal was originally taken from David by Saul while David was running for his life and was given to another man. She rightfully did belong to David as she was taken from David without his consent. And it seemed like Michal must have really loved David in the fact that she actually helped him escape out a window when her father, King Saul, was trying to kill him back in 1 Samuel 19. Michal is now seen returned to David, but seeing her husband running behind her Weeping is just a heartbreaking scene, and who knows how Michal felt. But women didn't have a whole lot to say back then. It was a monarchy, and what the king said happened. I often wondered why David even asked for her back in the first place, but maybe this was to establish a stronger alliance with Ishbosheth and the house of Saul. Who knows? So scripture doesn't really say, but now Abner is going to go on the campaign trail. Verses 17 through 19, Abner is going to campaign for support. Now Abner consulted with the elders of Israel, saying in times past, you were seeking for David to be king over you, now let's do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke to Benjamin, he also spoke to David in Hebron, and all that seemed good to Israel and to the whole house of Benjamin. It had been God's plan all along for David to be on the throne ruling over all 12 tribes, not just Judah, and that God would be with David and his people to conquer all their enemies along the way. Abner knew this. Ishbosheth knew it. The elders of Israel had to have known it. But Abner wanted a united front behind him. It's like when our politicians hit the campaign trails to convince everyone whose side they should be on. They want to make sure there's a lot of people. Abner was very persuasive in doing this. Now comes the congressional meeting. Verses 20 through 21, Abner meets with David. Then Abner and 20 men came to David in Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and his men. And Abner said to David, Let me go and gather all Israel together, and the Lord the king, that we may make a covenant with you, and that we will make you king over all that your soul desires. So David sent Abner away in peace. It was a good meeting. It was a peace treaty. Abner was being used as God's instrument in bringing the tribes of Israel together under King David, which was always God's plan for them. But as usual, with David's life, nothing stays quiet for long. The story takes a sharp twist. It's almost like a plot out of one of Shakespeare's play, plays, um, the espionage of it all. Uh, earlier, Abner was ticked off at Ishbosheth, but now Joab's the one that's going to be ticked off. Verses 22 through 25. Now, Joab returns onto the scene. Now, the servants of David and Joab came in from a raid with much spoil with them. 
Now Abner was no longer with David, for he had already left for Hebron, for David had sent him away in peace. When Joab and his army arrived, it was told to Joab that Abner, the son of Ner, had come to the king, and the king had sent him away in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you, and you sent him away, and he's gone already? You know that Abner came to deceive you and to learn of you going in and coming out and to find out everything you're doing. So Joab is accusing Abner of being an enemy spy. And I'd like to know who goes into the king and says, what are you doing anyway? Who talks to a king like that? He doesn't seem to have any respect for authority. But maybe Joab did have a, a good reason for feeling Abner was a spy. I'm sure Joab didn't trust him. And he's ticked. He's always harbored hatred in his heart for Abner because of the fact that Abner killed Joab's brother Asahel in the Battle of Gibeon, back in chapter 2. I'm sure he was also threatened by Abner after that meeting with the king because, after all, maybe Abner will be getting Joab's position. So there could be some contention there. But Joab is about to make a big mistake. Verses 26 and 27. When Joab came out from David, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the well of Syrah. But David didn't know this. So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the middle of the gate to speak to him privately, and he struck him in the belly so that he died on account of Asahel, his brother. And afterwards, when David heard this, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner. Joab's murder of Abner was one of personal revenge for the death of his brother. This was first degree premeditated murder. This was not what happened in the case of Asahel with Joab, Joab's brother Asahel. He was killed by Abner in a military battle. Abner even didn't, he tried to avoid killing him. But Joab did something he should never have done. He, this was outright personal revenge. And it's interesting to note that Joab, Joab was careful to kill Abner at the gate of Hebron and not inside the city because Hebron was noted as a sanctuary city. It was a city of refuge to protect those on the run from being killed. But Joab may have been a godless man, but he wasn't stupid. He made sure it was outside the gate. So David's response to the murder, verses 28 through 30, when David heard it, he said, I am my kingdom, my innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Abner, May, excuse me, may it fall on the head of Joab and all of his father's house. May it not fail from the house of Joab, one who has a discharge, one who is a leper, one who takes hold of the distaff, which would be a cane for the cripple, or one who falls, for the so falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the Battle of Gibeon. So both brothers are implicated in Abner's death. But this curse falls upon the house of Joab. David is pronouncing curses for this first degree murder. This is a prime example of taking personal vengeance for something done to you. Asahel was killed in a military battle. That is not the same as what Joab did to Abner. Vengeance belongs only to the Lord. That's quoted in Deuteronomy 32, Romans 12, Hebrews 10. And there is a vast difference between killing that takes place on a battlefield and calculated first degree murder for personal revenge. But Joab had a history of violence because Joab not only killed Abner, he also killed Amasa, one of David's chief captains, and he killed David's own son Absalom. So you see he has no fear or respect for authority. But here's David's tender heart as he mourns over this whole situation. Verses 31 through 37, Then David said to Joab and to all the people, 
tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, and lament before Abner. And King David walked behind the coffin. And they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king chanted a lament for Abner. He said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put in fetters. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. The people came to David to persuade him to eat bread while it was still day, but David vowed, May God do so to me, and more if I taste bread or anything else before the sun goes down. And all the people took note of this, and it pleased them, just as everything the king did pleased all the people. So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the will of the king to put Abner the son of Ner to death. How tender was the heart of David, even towards his former enemy. Even though David himself was a sinner, he did have a heart after God's own heart because he mourned when others died. He never rejoiced over the death of another. Ezekiel 18.23 says, God himself says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, but rather that he should turn from his evil ways and live. David thinks like God thinks. His heart was like God's heart. David showed the people by his tears and the fact that he couldn't even bring himself to eat, that he wasn't just putting on a front. But it had to have been like a tragic comedy for Joab to be told by the king to weep for the man he was so happy to have out of his way. David even said in his lament to Abner that he'd fallen before the wicked. This must have been David's estimation of Job's character, that he was wicked. But at the time, David still needed him as a commander. And this was David's further estimation of Abner. Verses 38 through 39. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed as king. These men, the sons of Zeruah, are too difficult for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. A lot, a lot of things are said by David in just these two simple verses. First, he, attribu he attributes lofty titles to Abner, calling him a prince and a great man. But the greatest characteristic of David is seen in his asking the Lord to repay the evildoers, Joab and Abishai. He never took personal revenge, even though as king he could have had them executed that very moment. But he waited on the Lord. David needed these ungodly men for the moment to unify the kingdom, but their day would soon come. But David is feeling weak because of the three sons of Zeruah. They've become nothing but a heavy burden, too much for him to bear. The three sons he's referring to are his sister Zeruah's sons, his own nephews, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now we know Asahel's already dead. Abishai, remember, remember, was David's bodyguard, the one who went down into Saul's camp the night that uh, David took the spear and the, uh, the water jug. Abishai right then and there wanted to finish Saul off, but it was David that stopped him, knowing that Saul was, David, was uh, God's anointed and he didn't allow him to do it. And Joab has been in trouble from the get-go. So David's exasperated because of these two, but he will soon regain his composure and his strength in the Lord. And in the upcoming chapters, we're going to see the kingdom coming together to rule under David as one united kingdom. Now, as usual, these ancient narratives, they always seem so far removed from our day and age and our own personal struggles. It's like, what does this got to do with me? So the question is always, what biblical truths, what principles can we gain from the political struggles of kings or the bloodshed of civil war that happened so many years ago. I can think of a few. Um, the first one that comes to mind is personal revenge. 
Personal vengeance is always sinful. It's always evil. And to take it into our own hands is not what we're supposed to do. Self-defense, of course, capital punishment by the government and killing in the confines of military battle wouldn't fall into this category. But in personal matters, no matter what harm has been done to you by another person, only God has the right to repay. In Romans 12:19, our brother Paul writes to us, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And that's Deuteronomy 32:35 as well, and Hebrews 10:30. And personal revenge doesn't, doesn't always have to be inflicted physically. It can take place in the heart of a person. When someone holds bitterness and hate, wishing nothing but evil for someone who has wronged you, 1 John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So it all boils down to harboring unforgiveness. Someone once said that unforgiveness is like a poison you drink while hoping for someone else to die. How true is that? Of course, in the flesh, this is impossible to do. You, we can't do this in the flesh. Only the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer can in any way be able to give us the power to forgive someone who's done us wrong. I know that from my own personal life, and sometimes it takes years, years to accomplish. The second principle I can think of is praying for the wicked. David had a tender heart. And that's God's heart. He mourned over his enemies, Saul, Abner, and others. He never rejoiced over their deaths. The Lord does not rejoice over the deaths of others either. Ezekiel 33 says this. As I say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from their evil ways and live. Common grace is a good example of God's loving kindness even to the wicked. He sends sunshine. He sends rain to both the godly and the ungodly alike. The wicked enjoy many of the pleasures of life that God has richly bestowed, and they don't deserve it either. Romans 5 explains that we as believers were also once wicked enemies of God, but God loved us enough to reconcile us to himself through the death of his son. He's never pleased to see anyone perish. 2 Peter 3.9 says that his will is that all would come to repentance and that none should perish. As believers, do we hate our enemies, those who hate us, or our country, or what we believe? Many times my flesh wishes my enemy only the worst. Instead, I should be praying for their souls to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I'm preaching to myself, by the way. The third principle I can think of is be patient and wait on the Lord. Waiting for the Lord's timing in your life is a difficult thing. David, David did it, though. He never tried to manipulate the outcome, even though he knew since a child he was the rightful king over Israel. He followed God's preordained plan for his life. And for him, it was a decade here and a decade there, and it will be the same for us. David never attempted to seize the throne from Saul or Ishbosheth. He waited on the Lord. And David repeatedly used the word wait or the phrase wait on the Lord throughout the Psalms many, many times. And that's why reading them is so helpful to me. And it's very encouraging to any of us who have been praying for... 10, 20, 30 years for something to happen and maybe we won't even live to see it come to pass. But God is sovereign and he's faithful. First Thessalonians 5.24 says he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. God doesn't work within our timetable because he lives outside of time, but he sees the big picture. And Hebrews talks about this when, he when Hebrews talks about Abraham patiently waiting to obtain the promise of a son in Genesis. He was 75 years old when God promised him a son. But 25 long years passed before it actually happened. Many in the Bible waited a long time before they received 
from the Lord what was promised to them. And we only have his character to rest in. He never lies. He's faithful to perform everything he's promised. So I guess it's our job to be patient. Again, our flesh fails us in this area, so the only way we're able to do this is through the Holy Spirit abiding in us. And that's why patience is the fruit of the Spirit. And when I'm not operating the Spirit, I'm totally the most impatient person, whether it's at a red light or a prayer request. It doesn't matter. So the conclusion is that there are great truths for all of us that can be a reality if we allow the Holy Spirit to control our thinking and our attitude. And this is only by abiding in the Word of God. Paul wrote in Romans 8.14, For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And if you're here today and you don't understand what it means, what I've just said, then most likely you do not have the Spirit in you. I urge you then to ask the Lord to show you your sin and repent and seek the only way to salvation, and that is Jesus Christ. And trusting in his death on the cross as a payment for your sin, you will receive the Holy Spirit, making all these things possible for you. Let's pray.